0: So, hello everybody who's uh, out there. Uh, I have an awesome guest today whose name is Kevin Bronco. And he's done a couple of documentary series. And also he's working on a uh, secret epic podcast right now. And uh, so one of his documentary films that he was working on is about addiction and related topics. And, uh, that one is called night crawlers. And so, uh, uh, yeah. So I thought we'd basically talk about, uh, this kind of intersects with both of our interests. Uh, I've been kind of thinking about the intersection of prejudice, addiction, and kind of, uh, the, I basically think that there's an overlap of, uh, kind of things going on between those two things and i think kevin would be interesting to talk about with this because uh we share this interview. hi welcome this is quirky science where we discuss crazy ideas welcome to the podcast I am your host, Gage Clark. introduce yourself a little
1: bit hi my name is Kevin Ronka and thanks for having me on Gage um, yeah so a lot of the films that I've made and the work that I've done has because I come from a very privileged um, background and upbringing and that's not to say my life hasn't had its tragedies like everyone else but I've decided to use my platform to give a platform to the people who I feel have become voiceless They're in Hollywood or in the world of art in general so um, Nightcrawlers is one of those films that I made and the group that I guess you could say I was using my platform to, or was giving my platform to, was homeless people and drug addicts. And a lot of my work is based on the notion of turning people back from uh, statistics into human beings where I feel like a lot of documentaries and even news articles have gotten really centered on turning human beings into data or into numbers. and very hard to humanize those people and to really see their pain uh, when they're nothing more than numbers. So my work's been about trying to, you know, humanize and shatter stigmas. And that's what I've spent a lot of my time doing. And it's probably why I'm not, you know, making good money right now. So (laughs) that's that's
0: true. Yeah, I think what you're doing is a pretty good thing. Uh, When it comes to addiction and Like homelessness and prejudice and all this stuff. Um, So, basically, like one of the things that I've sort of argued about it is that um, I suspect, and it's kind of like an obvious thing, but uh, at least if you are like familiar with people who've like gone through this, or if you've gone through it yourself, especially. Uh, but basically that uh, well, there's a, obviously a prejudice in society against people who are addicts and um, and I basically think that this actually worsens uh, people's addictions for a whole variety of reasons um, And uh, so like some of the stuff that I was working on is that, I basically argued that there's even a biological link to this problem, where like even even as far out as like animal research, we see things like the mechanisms for like uh, what's called social defeat, which is basically uh, like it's kind of like rejection, uh, being uh, bullied or subordinated and stuff like this, being disliked. Um, a very like low social status thing, right? So, so the argument I kind of make is that I think that well, there's basically research showing that um, that there is an intersection between the mechanisms of experiencing prejudice or like you know social defeat, I should say, and also. Um, Uh, things that promote addiction mechanisms. And so that's really problematic because uh, one of the things that people seem to be doing is uh, we as a society basically express prejudice as a way of trying to mitigate uh, the addiction problem. Like We basically try to scare people out of becoming addicts by being prejudiced against them, that people, like, it's such a shamed upon thing that maybe people would be deterred from doing it. But actually, uh, I think it is, I think it might work for that, maybe a little bit for like, there's definitely a lot of people who are afraid of using drugs because of that. But the people who already use them, this doesn't help them at all. I think it just drives them further into coping. And Uh, drives them to kind of deviate further and further from society to a point that they are so ingrained in kind of countercultures and other different uh, areas that might be problematic uh, for reasons that are unrelated to actually using drugs. Uh, But they so happen to like coincide on the basis of being rejected. And uh, so I think that's like a huge driving factor there, that prejudice is like pushing people out to become uh, like like perhaps enter cultures that have high crime rates or things like that.
1: I think a lot of the conceptions that um, self-prejudice or even shame are going to deter people from using drugs, especially like you said, if they're already addicted is, uh, is a complete misunderstanding of the usage of drugs to cope with trauma and things like that, which is what addiction often is. Because if somebody's going to put a needle in their arm, like many people I grew up around, people I've been very close with, and if you're going to put a needle in your arm to escape uh, what you consider a, a horrific incident uh, or existence. Like Burris said, uh, now anybody that doesn't understand that people who are using heroin are willing to inject you know, junk into their, right into their veins to escape what they consider a horrible existence. Anybody who's willing to do that, even knowing that something like fentanyl's on the market, which you know is what, like 10 times stronger than heroin, who's willing to do something like that to escape um shame isn't going to do a thing you know what i mean like yeah. it's like you said shame might even make them want to use more but people really fundamentally often don't realize that nobody wants to lay in their parents bathroom with a needle sticking out of their arm you know with abs you know s- cysts all over their body you know like yeah right not uh you know despite what some uh, hollywood stories have attempted to glorify with redemption or even with the usage of heroin, when the music stops and it's slow motion and all these little effects they use um, really doesn't get to the heart of what a lonely existence it really is and how much shame these people already feel, not from society, but from themselves. And, uh, you know, if you don't think a heroin addict feels shame, even the most boastful heroin addict, even the heroin addict that boasts about how much they hustle on their day-to-day, which is many addicts I've also met and hung out with. They go home at night. You don't believe they're feeling an immense amount of shame and pain. I think that these people, and this is part of the problem in society, fundamentally don't understand what the existence of an addict is like.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um, so there's this, there's this idea that, well, a lot of people have this idea about uh, the situation of, well, I guess. Like the whole connection with homelessness and being addicted. And I think um, maybe the common story is that people imagine is that people use some drug and they become so out of control and dysfunctional that they end up homeless. And I think that might happen sometimes. But I think that a lot more is going on there like so so for example, there's actually some research that it's explored how um, the tendency to be uh, using addictive drugs in the homeless population is like high enough to where like a lot of people actually don't even uh, become addicts until they are already homeless and that's kind of like different than, that a narrative that is before, like the one I mentioned in the beginning, uh, it's uh, it's more like they're potentially like coping. But I think I think what also can tend to happen is that this factor of prejudice, I think it plays in kind of on multiple levels here, where uh, prejudice for other reasons might actually lead someone to try. Uh, addictive drugs basically like if they if they were rejected from their family or their like say homosexuality or something like that uh, someone might be removed from their house because of the stigma on uh, homosexuality and then they end up uh, also kind of interacting with other cultures where people are, rejected for various reasons like they might like uh the way i kind of envision it is you might imagine that there's probably people who are psychopaths who are rejected for being psychopathic so they end up in the same circles as other rejects then there's people who are holding crazy belief systems like maybe uh kind of just whatever strange belief system that made them kind of get outcasted from society or there's people who uh, and uh, who, who are like homosexual or something or even trans and they end up uh, kind of floating in the same circles and then I feel like like they might uh, it's like all the different rejection cultures might kind of flirt with each other in a way and then like that will open the door to like being abused by like the psychopaths. Let's say will be spreading abuse to like the various other people. Uh, then drugs will be spread across these rejection circles, and um, basically, I feel that people get trapped in it because it's like they'll end up like people. People are social creatures as everyone says right and so we'll end up bonding with people of those cultures it becomes like tribes and uh and i feel that normal society essentially poses themselves as the enemy of like all of the different countercultures in a way and i feel like this kind of perpetuates this Problem in a way, like all the tr- all the things that s- n- supposed normal society or maybe conservative society even is opposed to, will kind of uh, navigate towards places where they are more accepted. But then it happens to be like this problematic situation. What do you think about that? I, I don't know if what.
1: Uh, so, I think a lot of that is true. I think that it's also worth mentioning, though, that a lot of people go homeless because of. um, Actually, I think one of the biggest reasons people go homeless in this country is medical debt, um, school debt, school debt probably not as high as medical debt, um, the wages. You know, there's a very anti-working class, anti-labor movement in this country, probably because the system is based in in capitalism. So what that often does is people lose their jobs. People do go homeless for the financial reasons. And then they often do find drugs, right, instead of the other way around. As the story we usually hear is like the heroin addict that falls out with his family and loses all his money on drugs or even gambling and ends up on the street. That does happen, like you said, that certainly happens. At the same time, though, um, a lot of times it's the other way around, as you mentioned. And that still follows what you're saying, because rejection of society could be for a belief system, but it very well could also be economic or class-based, right? So someone who is being paid a low wage or has their job terminated or has, you know, under a corrupt union boss or whatever the case may be, right, or especially during COVID has had their job terminated, they get kicked out of their home, they're much, much more likely to find drugs, whether it's because of the fact that they are, you know, in a depressed state where they're more susceptible to want to take something to deal with that trauma or, you know, As you also mentioned, maybe just end up in the kind of circles where those things, you know, again, being an outcast is—it could be a very umbrella term. I believe outcast could also be middle working class people feeling like they are outcasts in this um, very elitist, very classist capital society. That, especially with the the narratives the media pushes, there's a big um, fundamental push right now, and we saw it with the insurrection. Which, you know, not to get too political, but um, Chris Hedges has spoken pretty extensively. to prize-winning writer who covered a lot of the Iraq and uh, war and stuff like that. He's made some good cases that America is basically a tinderbox, and a lot of people, whether it's the media or the, the general consensus we live in right now, is a very identity politics, uh, virtue-signaling type of society, whether you're on the left or the right. And what that's done is made a lot of people who are working-class people on the left and on the right feel very much like they are outsiders and are outcasts. Now, if you couple that with... Uh, the sort of uh, disenfranchising we've seen of these groups of people, um, and I'm I'm going to remove the left and right spectrum and just say working class people in general are very much talked down to in modern society, and and the narrative also very much pushes these people down. And these are the people, especially people of color, and people that are the most vulnerable, ending up being homeless or ending up having issues like that. Uh, so. I think that it's exactly what you said, but mixed in with a sort of economical status as well. Because in America, economic status is sadly very important, so people who end up homeless for these reasons and also have uh, mainstream media narratives and government narratives of making them feel ashamed, uh, making them feel like they're left behind and making working people feel like the enemy, um, I think that that also could lead to, and we've seen lead to immense uh, to drug use and addiction and homelessness. So I think it's exactly what you said with tying in a sort of uh, social-economical element as well.
0: Yeah, that's a good point about the uh, socioeconomic factors. I think especially uh, in terms of generally drug use, uh, just drug use in general, I think that in the case of what I've kind of heard argued, I think it was uh, something that Dr. Carl Hart mentioned Uh, who, who's like this, he's like this popular guy that studies addiction and kind of, uh, pretty much like this stuff that we're talking about and misconceptions about addiction. Uh, he mentions that, uh, for a lot of the people in, uh, like poor conditions, it's like, there's not that much for, um, people to do basically like he talks about that there's not that many viable um, alternatives I think is I think he just calls them like viable alternatives or something for uh, basically like life can be so entrapping and fixated like you're just working and that's it and then something like drugs becomes something you can have as a hobby or something like satisfying or rewarding that is more easily accessible than, uh, like anything else like travel or whatever else it might be. Um, and he kind of points out some interesting things with, uh, like addiction rates like that. Like, so one of his, a couple of his studies focus on, uh, they like present people who are diagnosed with uh, addiction uh, and they he presents them alternative rewards versus their drug of choice like so uh, meth or uh, cocaine he offers them this or uh, $5 which is like the really a small amount of money right and Uh, In half of the cases at $5, they actually choose the money instead of a more expensive, more valuable uh, uh, amount of the drug of their choice. And that's kind of weird, right? Like You wouldn't expect that, but uh, when they ramped it up to $20, uh, they uh, pretty much, I think it was like 90% or something, choose the... Money instead of the drug, which is like, I don't know, that that seems like really counterintuitive to what people would think.
1: I see that. I see two things from that. Um, You know, obviously, I never read the study, so I can't say for sure. But two things that come to mind is either one, which many people have spoken about, many minds I trust a lot, that we didn't have such uh, economic problems and we had a bigger care on uh, mental health in this country and made that more of a priority and made access to it better. Um, so if you Basically, what I'm saying is I'm not saying that trauma and depression don't come from other things other than money, but I do believe that if people had health care, and health care not just meaning physical health care, but mental health care, which most people cannot afford, don't have access to, and they had money in their bank account to pay the rent every month, that would be just one thing they don't have to worry about right so you have all the regular things in life that can affect you but then you have this other thing that kind of weighs over a lot of people like an anvil waiting to drop and if you had were able to d- remove that part of it people would have a lot more time I think to get in touch with some of these other things in their life that maybe are bothering them mentally physically and spiritually I think that if people had health care People had, you know, and I think that you can actually couple this with looking at some of the countries like Canada. And I'm not saying Canada is some heavenly place, and I'm not saying Justin Trudeau is not an asshole. But what I'm saying is, if you were to look into, uh, especially with their access to healthcare, especially with their slightly more socialist agendas, they definitely have a lower poverty rate than we do. I think you might see correlations to uh, overall better state of mental health, maybe less suicides, and maybe less of an addiction problem than we have in America. I'm not sure it's quite an epidemic there as it is here. And I, I can't say that for sure. But to go back to what you said before that about, um, you know, people who live in, uh have nothing to do. I think you were saying something about that and how that kind of spreads to addiction and then moved into that study about money. I used to have a friend, um, you know, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, 10 years ago I was a drug dealer. That's how he made my money. I did a good living doing it, but I never sold anything that I wouldn't take myself. I, you know, I didn't sell heroin. I didn't sell cocaine and hard drugs like that. But I had a friend who lived in a place. couple um, up on the allegheny river so you drive so far north in pennsylvania that i mean i'm talking this is a village a village that was once mostly indigenous people that were wiped out but he lived in this little cabin um, right on the water and i remember we went up there and we took acid and we went down the, the river it was it was a lot of fun but i remember walking around his house and it was just like a look like a bomb shelter as far as like, there was like coloring books and vintage toys you haven't seen in 50 years and, and, and guns and then drugs. And I asked, you know, what's with the coloring books? What's with this other stuff? And he said, you know, there's nothing for us to do out here and the local mall is about 45 minutes away. I mean, there is nothing to do and we're poor. And so meth and these other drugs, you know, really breed in places like that, especially small community based especially small police force. Um, I think there is a correlation between drugs. But another thing I want to say about that study is the people that I know that are addicts, um, because humans are very much built on survival, and many of them are rather adaptable, and the drug addict, drug addict lifestyle is something you need to adapt to quickly or you will not survive in it very long. And I know this as being a former addict, but uh, people I know that were addicts would rather take the 20 bucks, and they can hustle and get a lot more than whatever little bit of drugs the study was offering. You give $20 to an addict... I mean, I knew addicts that could flip that to $80 rather quickly. Um, so uh, I've always wondered if maybe that's what they were thinking. It's like, you know, I'll take the 20 bucks and I'll go get, you know, four times as much.
0: Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of flexibility in money. So that is definitely probably a factor there. Um, so uh, I guess something else. Um, so... Hmm. So this, I'm kind of looking over some notes just to make sure I don't mess this part up, but, um, so something about, uh, the kind of narrative that people talk about in terms of, um, uh, I guess I would say antisocial behavior, which basically is just like, uh, like crime or hurting people or like Kind of so so like antisocial personality would be the other term for psychopathy, but it's kind of uh, there's so much uh, kind of what's the word um, dramatization around that that kind of topic. So I I don't know. I basically am using the word antisocial to kind of maybe uh, tone it down a bit, <laughs> um, but um, I think uh well well I'm actually gonna skip that point for a second because it's it's I th- I don't know that's sort of uh I think I can't think straight enough on that topic yet so I'll come back to that later I think instead though um
1: that's an exciting topic. sorry
0: could you say to say topic? about
1: that I have a lot to say about that it's an exciting topic
0: yeah so let's
1: definitely circle back
0: so basically, I, I sort of view society as kind of like all these different cultural bubbles, right? And then there's this mainstream culture, which uh, kind of regulates a lot of things. Like, it is tends to be more conservative, and perhaps some of the rules are more universal. Like, uh, obviously, the police system is... Uh, one of those things that is, like, completely permeating uh, everywhere, right? And it has, like, regulations that are all completely organized and rigorous in a way, at least more than the kind of structure that you might find, like, if you were uh, in your friend's family's home or something like that. There's no, like, uh, like they'll have rules, but those rules are not as... Uh, crazy integrated with, like, uh, the overarching society or something. So, so, like, um, but anyway, so, like, in terms of the main, like, this mainstream, uh, societal, uh, rule, it kind of dictates that people should not use, uh, various chemicals and, um, so there's this thing, like to be accepted into the mainstream culture, you basically have to follow a lot of different social norms. And I see the situation here is kind of that if you are to not follow all of those rules, um, you are prone to getting uh, kind of exiled from... The people who do follow those normal rules, like if you are hanging around a bunch of conservatives, let's say, or people who are like very traditional or uh, any of that kind of stuff, you might find that they don't uh, permit a lot of different things. And if you were to do any of those one things, you might be kind of pushed out of those circles that are of people who are behaving the most uh, kind of conserved or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so what ends up happening is that once you are outside of these spheres, you are also not regulated by the rules of those people as much. Like you are in terms of the police, uh, but in terms of like your friends kind of pressuring you to, uh, follow, certain belief systems or certain rules or certain behaviors and customs, that kind of gets thrown out the window. So uh, in terms of, like, someone who tries drugs or someone who even tries anything that's outside of cultural norms, uh, like, let's just say someone who uh, tries, who does, like, say the, the example of the homosexuality again, that person will probably be more capable of trying drugs because of the fact that they are rejected from the culture that is policing drugs, and that's not to say the government though, but I mean kind of just like if you get kicked out of your home and your home is policing you from trying drugs and now you go off and you're meeting other people that might, uh, that just basically don't care or they do drugs themselves or they accept of it. Uh, it becomes much easier to find yourself trying those things, and so the whole uh, the whole way that antisociality ties into this, which which antisociality, it's basically just to break. Like there, there's one layer where it's to break social norms, and this is considered offensive to uh, whatever cultural bubble especially maybe the mainstream cultural bubble but there's also not only breaking social norms but actively uh, like harming people right like that's the, the, the classic view of what psychopathy is but there's also uh, the kind of more covert version which is um, which people would pretty much label using drugs as something in that category of breaking the social norms but also like stealing or various other things. And so once you are kind of outed from this mainstream cultural bubble, uh, you can find yourself in a culture that accepts drugs, but it also might consist of all these different kinds of people. And I think that like, like most obviously, the people who are just genuinely like psychopathic, that don't care about social norms or that they uh, reject them outright, uh, those people will be prone to uh, trying drugs more simply because they're not bound by the rules of uh, not trying them. And so this culture of uh, drug use will often be, it will often consist of various people who fall on that spectrum of being a psychopath but it also consists of people who are just like how i said like homosexual or rejected for some other reason or maybe they don't even like they're just completely rejected based on mental illness like they're schizophrenic and they uh lose all support from their family uh who doesn't understand what's going on with that situation or um they could try drugs first and then they're rejected because of that like there's all kinds of reasons that one might be exiled from their family or their cultural bubbles and they'll find themselves in bubbles that are probably trend towards being more open in a lot of ways but they will also have these psychopaths and i think what ends up happening is that those psychopaths probably gain a lot of power in those communities because their traits might predispose them to just generally gaining power over people, like even in the terms of like CEOs being psychopaths. Um, they have a kind of resiliency that they are not really, they're slightly immune to the effects of social rejection, which allows them to do a lot of things that people don't like, basically. And so I think once someone enters these communities, they their standards might change and their social norms will be influenced by a kind of cultural bubble that includes many of these people and even just different ways to diverge from culture, like, you might find that there's more flat earthers in these communities as well, or like, Any number, anything that's like associated with rejection will be uh, probably somewhere in these communities. And uh, so I'm almost done with this point. Sorry if it's getting on for a while. I know. So basically, like with rejection, it's like um, you kind of. Uh, society will reject things that are arbitrary and then they'll reject things that might be worthy of rejection, like violent people. And um, then you'll end up with like people rejected based on weird traditions and unfair rules, like in the case of homosexuality and all these different kinds of things. And then you cluster them all together to kind of mimetically influence each other and spread new social norms Um, is this something like you've experienced or like, what do you think about this?
1: Oh, my thoughts. Uh, so I'll try to keep my jumbled thoughts in order. The the first thing I think about when you talk about things like rejection of societal norms and drugs is the counterculture of the late sixties. Um, I also think about, you know, you can see the cycles of which, you know, drug use is kind of pervade. If you look at the 1950s. There was an immense amount of heroin. Um, You saw the B-poets using a lot of heroin and drugs like that. Um, Psychedelics, though probably used, might not have achieved pop culture popularity that they would later reach. um, When you get to the late 60s and LSD and you had, you know, Augustus Owsley Stanley cooking obscene amounts of acid and legally dispensing it at concerts and things like that. The difference I see now between the sort of counterculture of then to the counterculture of now is education system in the 60s. Yeah, we, we already know that our parents' degree was a college degree and the equivalent now to our college degree is a high school degree. Right? We also know that civics is no longer taught in classes, which was the only way to really understand societal norms as far as even what your rights were as a human being, which I factor into societal norms. Right? So in the late 60s, we had a very different kind of counterculture than what we have now, but fairly well-informed um, very much expanding their consciousness. The counterculture we see now, if you want to call it that, um, well, I guess, yeah. So you could say the protest movement now is trying to sort of mimic the counterculture of the late 60s, but generally it's uninformed and generally it's pushing mainstream talking points, which, which isn't counterculture at all, right? If you go to a Not My President rally, you see nothing more than a monolithic being, whereas the older counterculture movements were Possibly monolithic in throwing in in getting together for a common cause, but individual thought was not only appreciated, it was certainly uh, encouraged. Um, What you see now in counterculture, true counterculture, is exactly what you're saying, which is people who are living outside of society's norms. It's not people going to a rally and take pictures on Instagram and and, and saying the same thing, um, which they've been taught by the media, which is backed by corporations. I think is the counterculture you're talking about is homeless communities and small populations. And even I knew people that lived in communes that were more or less drug houses. And I've slept on the floor of places like that. And um, what I would say is uh, it has changed a lot to the counterculture of outside society norms is no longer about advancing knowledge and and pushing uh, to try to change society's norms or change the consciousness of the public. But it's been more about... um, you said, uh, kind of living in these sort of bubbles, and, and this is where a lot of them will come into contact with drugs, and then much like a wolf in sheep's clothing, there will definitely be sociopathic behavior of people who can take control of these people. I've seen it myself, and not only in addicts, but in, 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 in dealers. Dealers certainly thrive in these communities, and I'm not, I'm not even demonizing all drug dealers. I'm not even demonizing all heroin dealers, though I think they're misdirected many of the heroin dealers and drug addicts or dealers that I met were addicts themselves. And it was more of a you or me type of behavior of like, well, I got to get my fix. no matter what I have to do to get it. And, um, I don't think all those people are necessarily trying to, you know, psychopaths as maybe we define those words differently because you have a better understanding. And I've only been taught that word through a uh, very strange narrative that's been pushed, whether through Hollywood or, or otherwise, but still that there's a very, uh, parasitic and even uh, predatory behavior I've seen in dealers and how they use um, people who are susceptible and and feel like they've been pushed away. And I don't think it's much different than what you see people who join cults and and things like that. And I think it's that same idea of feeling like you've been pushed out of the fringe of society and are looking for a place of of acceptance. But I also want to say I don't think it's difficult to uh, imagine why some people would want to uh, fight back against the norms of society, and I've experienced it myself, uh, in the United States, um, media is an incredibly powerful thing, and time has gone on, and especially going back to the. and this is going to get outside of science and, and what you're talking about, but this is where I think we bridge our knowledge uh, of what we're, we're both more uh, necessarily read in. And in, in 1995, the Telecommunications Act, or it might have been 94, five four companies were able to basically consolidate all of the information being passed through the television. Um, That is a a very large consciousness shifting situation because that is now, now corporations own everything on television, and television is where people get their information as well as the radio, so societal norms can be changed. So when you have corporations that it's their benefit to run five companies and tell people what society's norms are, they profit incentive. Uh, this is when we start to see society changing. And so if you look at, you know, if you flash forward to now, if you're ever to disagree with the mainstream narrative, you are considered a conspiracy theorist. I mean, look at the examples of the Syrian gas attacks that they claimed was Assad with very little uh, acts behind that. To this day, um, even if you look at, like, the United Nations and the reports that have been done, there hasn't been a lot of truth, or proof, I should say, or evidence that, that Assad attacked his own people. But what we do know is the United States, as a country, and as a imperialist, uh, post-colonial country, we're looking for reasons to go into Syria, and we're looking for a reason to convince the American public to back that position as the societal position. And so the gas attack became, a lot of people believe, uh, cannon fodder to do that. The problem with that is, um, anybody that would disagree with this narrative would be considered a conspiracy theorist, and now is on the outside of society looking in. But this happened with a lot of things. This happened with Russiagate. It became common knowledge that Russia overtook our elections, and anybody that said that wasn't true could be demonetized or shut out of their social circles as a conspiracy theorist or as some people even said a useful idiot for Vladimir Putin. I myself have faced that, as well as many of my friends, and uh, even got, some of them have even gotten death threats. They've got money taken out of their pocket. They've been uh, basically shoved away from the rest of society, even by people in their own you know, political circles. And so I guess what I'm saying is I believe that the government has a very large hand in creating the social order. And the social order is always to protect their own investments. The saddest thing I see sometimes in my everyday life people who I am speaking out in defense of whether economical or politically or even talking about Yemen or some of these countries that are being bombed uh, with impunity and I'll find myself being alienated as an outcast for trying to speak up for others and that's just societal norms being shoved on you by a very uh, I would say far-right neo-fascist government and I don't mean neo-fascists like Donald Trump neo-fascist I'm talking about a country where the means of production, the means of the media, uh, and the means of police and society's norms. You know, police are here to protect investments. They're not meant here to protect people. They're quicker to protect a building than they will a human being, especially a poor one. So what I'm saying is society's norms since the counterculture have been shaped by a greedy group of subhumans and imperialists, and anybody used to speak out against that can very quickly fall into being on the fringe. And that's a very scary to think, to think that society has flipped to a point where if you're to speak out against genocide, you might find yourself on the outside of a social circle. And so I think that's something that needs to be taken into account nowadays. It's not just economical that you get kicked out. It's not just being a homosexual, which is definitely a, pro- you know, a problem in many circles, especially religious circles. Trans people have it very susceptible, indigenous people. But even now, if you're to defend some of these people, instance, if I'm to defend the poisoning of the water of people at Standing Rock, I may find myself on the outskirts or on the fringe of society. And I've had many, the amount of people close, you know, it's interesting, a lot of my work isn't watched by friends and family of mine. So when I look at my follower count, it's, you know, two, three thousand, Um, surprisingly, only about a hundred of those people are people I know personally. My work has touched people um, on the internet and in person who, especially addicts, former addicts political, you know, people very far on the left, working class people, even people on the right that feel like they are right wing, uh, not socially, but fiscally, but they feel like addiction and these things are, are, are nonpartisan, which they aren't partisan. Um, you know, a lot of people find my work because they feel like they're on the fringe or on the outside looking in and they feel like they've been left behind by the process. But a lot of my friends and family don't watch my work because they follow the mainstream narrative and anything else and you're, you're, you're a conspiracy theorist. And so... You know, I think that we constantly live in a state of uh, everybody telling us that things will get better and things are okay and things could be much worse. And uh, you're a bummer or you're ruining people's time or say you're even depressing people to call out real issues. But the problem with people who think like this is I consider them complacent in society's problems. Because if you're silencing people that want to speak up against addiction, homelessness, and genocide – Um, Or the many other issues that we're seeing, the poisoning of Flint's water. People say, oh, I don't want to hear that right now. I'm depressed. This is exactly what I'm saying, where we've created a social order where we've become numb and complacent to these things. Like, oh, yeah, I know about Flint's water. Like, I don't want to talk about that. Well, the bottom line is people are drinking poison right now, and they're getting no relief after eight years. The fact that we're not talking about this constantly And then it comes down to American individualism and American exceptionalism, which we are taught and programmed night and day. It's like, well, that's not my water. And I have to worry about my community or my family. And this is just the powers that be turning people against each other. Because what is your problem is my problem. If you believe what many uh, astrophysicists and and other scientists have said, which is more or less, um, you know, take example, a boxing ring, right? you have two boxers, a ring, and an audience, but we know that um, the human eye is only able to see so much, but if if they were able to see things as they really were, and we were able to see mattered molecules, which we cannot, um, the boxers, the ring, and the audience are actually one being connected by molecules. There's almost no separation, and they're just being experienced through different perspectives or vantage points. And so what I mean by that is, if you bomb a country overseas, that will have a ripple effect on everybody around it. You may not see it or hear it, but it's still happening. And then that will have an influx of refugees coming. You know, a lot of people say we should open the borders and things like that. Well, we should really stop bombing refugees. Is probably the way to fix the border problem, right, because they have nowhere to go. And to bring this back to what you're talking about is uh, these kinds of things, you know, the American exceptionalism, individualism, is not only a narrative that is not true because we know that we are almost – one in connection it behooves and benefits everybody to strive for life to be better for everybody and that is not the narrative that people are taught it's about you it's about you got to look out for yourself this is the way you climb in America and um, I think all of these things create a very horrifying status quo that the same person or maybe we should not use the word sane, but the uh, very perceptive person would realize is completely incorrect and completely based on horrifying neo-fascist tendencies, but if you're to speak out against that because that is the social norm, they, they will make they will gaslight you into believing that you're the crazy one, and we see this all the time. And uh, so I think that uh, society, you know, the corporations in which run our country have a lot to do with this, and they have a lot to do with the addiction problem. And and to couple that is, we also live in a society where there's certain drugs that the powers that be do not want us to take for good reason. Corporations. Uh, one reason they don't want marijuana to be legal is certainly because they cannot patent it. They also can't very much can't control it. Um, but LSD and and many other drugs that expand consciousness have really gotten at the worst in some of the propaganda that's been pushed about them. Where you know you will turn on the news and see about six commercials for different drug companies and big pharma, which again are the corporations which control this country, which are hell-bent on giving drugs that will make it harder to be perceptive to the world around you and i think that's by design it's not just by profit design xanax oxycodone these are drugs that i've been i've used been addicted to friends of mine have also been addicted to and i've lost dozens of friends who've died from it um, most of them before the age of many of them before the age of 25 and uh so, the, again, the counterculture I see now, because of how society has changed so much and gotten so much worse and moved so much far, farther right and corporations have consolidated so much more power, is the counterculture isn't necessarily all using things like LSD and trying to expand their mind as much as trying to shut off their mind and escape into the back of their eyelids from a very horrific fate.
0: Yeah, wow, that is a lot of interesting points. Um, so I can definitely right. relate... Yeah. Me. Wait, what?
1: Feel free to stop me at any time if I'm just ranting. No,
0: no worries. Um, so I relate a bit on how you, you've said uh, most of the viewers that you have are not uh, like your friends or close people so much or family or whatever. And uh, I'm actually scared for, uh, for that to happen in, in terms of like my content. But... But it's like a really tricky area because I feel that I don't know. There's like so many different ways that I think this could, like, uh, basically, like some of the stuff I write. It's with the idea that, uh, like I guess psychedelics would be kind of uh, more accepted, and uh, but that's not. I mean, I'm mostly like posting science stuff about it but at the same time it's because i believe that uh like from what i'm reading it seems like these are things that are very very useful right and so like part of it in terms of like when i make content that i don't entirely make science content right so i make like um opinion type content as well and so some of it is kind of having in mind what I would expect kind of maybe the impact on society to be, if these things were more like, uh, if they found use in the public, I guess, but it's like really complex. So like, um, well, okay. So you, I'm gonna. I kind of took some notes on some of the stuff you said. I'm just gonna kind of go through some of the stuff I was thinking when you said it, those things. So it was interesting that you mentioned that uh, before the '60s and before the kind of psychedelic counterculture, uh, you mentioned that uh, heroin was popular, and it's kind of interesting because right now um, we've had that's still going on. And worsening, presumably, um, is the opioid crisis, right? And, um, but what's interesting is there's actually a lot of talk about an upcoming psychedelic renaissance, which is, but it's kind of taking a weird form, which kind of spooks me, but I'm not sure. I don't know what to think about it because the thing, the thing is that like, so basically what is happening is that. Corporations are starting to slowly get in the business of potentially marketing uh, psychedelics as treatments for various things, and that there might even be, I think, like stocks based on um, psychedelic companies. And like this kind of spooks me, but at the same time, I have this feeling that. The nature of the effects of psychedelics is going to manifest in ways that it's not going to matter, and after this happens, like I feel like, um, I don't, I don't know how much I want to get into this idea because some of it I think will be things that people don't need to think about yet because it might be better just to let it happen, but, um, but I think. Sorry, so, for
1: one second. yeah. My your concerns for that are probably very similar to my concerns about the legalization of marijuana, which is that um, you know I used to get my LSD in you know, 2010. There was a little renaissance of psychedelics in, in the late 2000s, but I think it kind of went away when the Silk Road was shut down. But I'm not sure how much of a conscious expanding thing it was, or how much of just getting high thing it was, but. You know, I I would say some some cases I'd maybe trust my LSD more from a, a passionate chemist uh, who really believed in what they were doing, which are fewer and farther between under a, a capitalist society over necessarily a big pharma based corporation making LSD. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how much I trust that, so I might share some of your concerns about corporations making psychedelics.
0: Totally, yeah, it's 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 weird, but what I think is that. Well, at least at this moment, the way that it appears is that there are activists who are basically guiding that process at least for now. I think that will change when it's if it becomes more mainstream, but the thing is, I have a feeling that the cultural impacts of of this happening would be somewhat pronounced, like um. Like I think that mm, ah, it's, it's so hard to say, but but there's like there is a lot of values that are floating around in the whole psychedelic space that I've been a part of right now. And uh, but the thing I don't see actually is talking about a lot of ethics things. It seems like maybe people are, avoiding this a little bit well well there's a lot of talk about mental health though so like that i would say is kind of included in it like so like treating people who are addicted to opioids or whatever that is definitely talked about there's also i have seen things like um things related to um race type of conflicts in society And potentially probably like the traumas involved in systemic racism and stuff like this. But I'm not sure about... um, I don't know. What I see is a lot of focus on kind of... I feel like there's a culture of agreeableness and trying to get everyone on board with being okay with psychedelics pretty much. And, um, but I, I'm curious, like if that were to progress to a certain point, I do feel that the effects of just humans consuming them would be drastic besides the values of whoever's promoting them. Like I feel that, um, the effects are quite drastic as you probably know from experience, right? But, um, I don't know I think it would change the way people think about society and it would change how people were uh, how willing people are to let go of previous um, tendencies in society like, uh, like if we were to realize the problem in like Flint with their water, I'm not sure that people on like LSD would be okay with realizing that and be okay with saying well, I don't want to think about that, right? I think they would pro- probably just bad trip or something, but um, I don't know for sure. Though maybe they could, maybe that's not the case. I don't know, but but my suspicion is that that people would be very um, concerned, and I think that if like the more that it would progress into like normal society. Like well, my main concern is that uh, there would be a serious pushback at a certain point. I think that that might be inevitable. Like that, um, like it would start just kind of ripping apart certain elements of society. Like, but but it's like so, so so. The thing is about society is I feel like society is really it is addiction. Like it is this pattern of people being addicted to coping with their work situation and not uh not uh like the, like even the people who are working are not the people who are all willing to rebel like i feel like everyone is slowly growing to detest their lives and many of them are turning to things like opioids which might uh, it's like it might up the amount of horribleness that people are willing to tolerate in their Uh, circumstance right like like if their life is getting worse and worse this painkiller might reduce the amount of pain that that worse and worse feels like so like there's like this tendency where like people are like like not even on just that level like people are addicted to like like they fear radical change and so like like there's also this tendency of toxic workflow where like I feel that people can get ahead by sacrificing their quality of life and like now people are competing by like showing how hard they can be a slave to uh, the higher ups and that gets them uh, higher status in the workplace but then like they're also competing for lowering their wages or something like that and like making everything worse and worse and like like they're, they're simping the uh, companies and like, I feel like this is happening on multiple levels in such a way that it's not necessarily even driven by people necessarily. Like there is people driving it too, but I think it it starts to occur on a weird level when we start talking about like corporations where like just the system dynamics itself are kind of promoting this. And then it becomes like this, in it eventually, like, like the amount of people that the, that the corporation, like the amount of people's well-being that the corporation considers shrinks more and more and more. And then, like, the people at the top might not care to a certain point because it still cares about them in a way. But then, like, I feel like that might shrink and shrink until it is just kind of, like, there is no escape from it or something and that like now everything is gone kind of really wrong and like uh but i think like so many so much of society is so so, like on on a beyond the corporation scale so much of society is Really, people being addicted to living a normal life, like they they are used to living like these repetitious, habitual lifestyles, and kind of learning how to ignore the problems that surround them, especially the ones that don't affect them, and um, like something that I've been thinking about in terms of like the protests and like what seems to be an almost collapse of society but it seems like it's not actually fully happening yet but i don't know i'm kind of curious what will happen if if the pandemic were under control i don't know what people are gonna do like i don't know if they're gonna go back to normal or if they're gonna like get hyped up and like just go crazy you know but um
1: I'm waiting for people to realize there 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 never was a normal and whatever was normal in any other form of humane society would not be considered even close to normal
0: yeah like so something i notice about that actually is that like when some some place like say china like it's really easy for people to notice what kind of crazy seemingly horrible things are going on there pretty much because there are things that we aren't numbed to but then the things that happen within our own lives like all the kind of like s- Everything that we're used to is just completely ignored, despite the fact that it can be either worse or equal to what we notice in other places.
1: I mean, to go off what you're saying with that, though, I think a lot of the stuff that we see in China that a lot of you know, that people in the United States take so much issue with, having spent like, uh, a well, uh, so good amount of time in China being married to someone who's Chinese, is, um, and especially going into China the first time I visited with my own kind of fears— what I've been told is a lot of things in China we are outraged by simply go under a different name. For, for instance, if you want to talk, you know, let's just briefly say like the Uyghur situation, which has been, don't get me wrong, at ed- re-education camps, are not something I necessarily agree with, but the uh, case of calling it genocide and things like that is, is simply not true. It, it's, and even a lot of those facts have been distorted by a far-right uh, German maniac, and a lot of people don't ever talk about that, but that's the main source for the Uyghur situation. But it's true that extremist groups from Turkey and, and those places, uh, separatist groups that have committed many attacks are being put in re-education camps in China where they are entering sort of a free will. But what I'm saying about that is not that I'm okay with re-education camps, but you will see Americans quicker to call that out than the American penile system, the American Mass incarceration system, uh, which is just as bad or worse. So anything we're calling genocide in China, re education in China, you could say is tenfold in the United States, which has the largest incarceration rate of any country, including Russia. So we, we, we say, oh, re education camps, and oh, you know, which our government tells us to think. We, we are then looking at this problem and, and completely ignoring the fact that America is more or less a police incarceration state, something very similar to a Kafkaesque. Uh, type of thing. And if you look at, say, like, oh, well, they don't have freedom of press and freedom of media, well, we certainly have more freedoms than maybe they do, but journalists still get arrested in the United States. And the media here, rather than being owned by the state in China, which will say, like, oh, they have state run medias, we have, oh, we have free media, we have corporation media. But when you live in a country which is a corporate coup where the corporations run the government, well, then, then we basically have state media, which is one narrative. So A lot of times it's just sort of on the other side of the pond or through the looking glass situation where we see it through a different lens and say, oh, how could it be? And don't realize that a lot of those issues exist at the heart of America, too. They just go under different names that are more palatable to our taste or words that we have, like you said, become sort of desensitized to.
0: Yeah, it would be something that would be really interesting as if – which I kind of think is the case and I have heard arguments that this is why – they were banned in the, uh, I think, 70s. I forgot when exactly they were banned. But but with psychedelics and, like, in terms of this situation, I have a feeling that if people, the more people that would consume these things, they will stop having this kind of bias where they're completely numbed to their situation and their uh, context to, to where it's like, People will become sensitive again and then uh, see their own uh, their own context as if it were a foreign place, right Like we can recontextualize what uh, how we see just our situations and um, but yeah, something. Something that that made me think of is, it's kind of like the my side bias, which is this tendency to kind of uh, just be biased to your position and against the presumably other side's position. Um, uh, That kind of thinking, well, I don't know, I've been kind of reading about it a lot Lately. Well, I'm not even going to go into that, actually, but but it's just interesting because it, it sounds like it's pretty much that is kind of what's going on there, maybe. Um, Can I
1: ask you something? Do you believe that if America was, you know, I think one of America's biggest problems is its ego, this is inherently passed down? And then to go even back to what you said before, because I wanted to respond to it, was you had mentioned that the corporations at the top are sort of just another part of this, Uh, But I would say that people at the top, technically, would be considered a fringe um, outside of the realm of society group of addicts and also sociopaths. (laughs) You have to be a sociopath to be a CEO, I think, to be making such an enormous amount of wealth on sharing it with others or to just be um, disenfranchising millions of people so that you could own a yacht. But I I also think it's based on power. But I I had a a friend who was on my podcast, Smoke Break, who was a, a rehab counselor, and he was saying. I don't have sympathy for, but I actually acknowledge the, the uh, Sackler family that got the Sackler family that got me addicted by being, you know, billionaire selling oxycodone. He said they themselves are probably addicts uh, on a higher level, addicted to power and money, and then has reciprocated down. So um, American greed and things like that, which is a, another form of addiction. I think uh, I think it happens at all levels in America, and it just ends up in a very uh, the system we live in, which is like a pyramid uh, that. Um, the Shit runs downhill, you know, runs downhill and profit runs uphill, so they may be addicts, but that is being passed down to the lowest denominator in which it's somebody uh, getting a fix. But I just think it's worth acknowledging that I think that the top 1% is also a fringe uh, outside the realm of society. Though they make the rules of society, so I wouldn't say they're on the outside of society, but just the, the way that they behave um, isn't probably much different on a um, micro level than the addicts which they serve the dealers which they serve
0: yeah and i think that's that
1: beautiful and, and those kinds of drugs um when i was growing up you could open up your cabinet and find them in the, in the closet not necessarily mine but most medicine cabinets had it um it wasn't nothing wrong with taking that stuff i knew 11 and 12 year olds that would take oxycodone and xanax that they find in their parents room i knew a kid when i was in uh sixth grade it was in my spanish class um this is before i used drugs and he would pull out a baggie of pills he had taken from his mother. This was a rainbow bag and I don't think that at that time arrowhead was very much in circulation so he was just grabbing random pills smashing them up into a bag and sniffing them in his nose in in the bathroom and it got to a point one time where his whole face swelled up and he had to go to the hospital but uh, I knew another kid who could just go in his mother's under his mother's mattress and find her fentanyl patches at 15 years old and he was just sticking them all over his body without really knowing what he was engaging in. And, you know, five, ten years later, he was a heroin addict um, who ended up getting arrested for having a firearm on him and serving time in prison. These are not people that, if you maybe saw with our own bias, would expect to be doing these kinds of things. Uh, Accessibility of these things, like uh, pharmaceuticals, and it's by design, have also made the problem much worse. It was way harder to get LSD when I was growing up than to get a pill. Um, You would have to go pretty far. Sometimes I've had to drive to trailer parks two hours away in in towns of a few hundred people to find LSD, where I could just go to a friend's house and go into his cabinet, uh, and I would be able to find a lot of oxycodone and, and drugs like that. And those drugs have been traditionally a gateway into the heroin problem. Most people I know did not start on heroin. Almost none of them did. Most people I know started with a pill and they would eat their parents pills or whatever was nearby and then they would start buying them on the street but the problem was and the Sacker family knew this this was a gateway to heroin because you know and this this is for me I never used heroin but I was addicted to oxycodone luckily I was making a good amount of money selling drugs at the time so I could afford my habit which is why I never eat um, but for people I knew that were poor or had no money it would be buying you know they would be paying a dollar a milligram and they would be harder and harder to get high the more they used as you know So they would be taking 30 milligrams per day, $30 per day. They're not making a lot of money. These are working class people spending $210 a week to get high. And what they'd eventually realize was, oh, instead of spending $30 a day, I could spend $5 a day and buy heroin. And that is where the gateway happens. And that is uh, when things get very dangerous. Uh, Because now you have people that they just want to spend less money. And that is the main reason they have moved to heroin. It's not some, oh, I really want to try heroin thing. It's. It's survival it's like I can't keep spending thirty dollars per day just to stay normal so now to feel normal I'm only going to spend five a day and you know heroin is this is the slippery slope to death uh, the amount of people I knew that died from taking oxycodone is a uh, minuscule compared to the amount of people I know that have died from taking heroin uh, but most of them started on Percocets and pills like that and even pills are much more acceptable in society than telling someone you take heroin so I just wanted to make that distinction of, of how a lot of that ends up happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I really liked what you said about, uh, like, the top and the bottom of society. Or not even, uh, I don't even think I would, I don't know if I want to call the bottom the bottom. But, but you get the idea that they, uh, like, that the CEOs are really addicts at the fringe of society as well. I think that is really interesting. And actually that kind of got me thinking. So, so earlier you mentioned, like, we kind of, there was a point where we're talking about like psychopathy and stuff. And so I I should put it out there. My views of what happens in the case of psychopathy is not, I, I kind of am opposed to the current, um, I guess, like, DSM version of, uh, of antisocial personality and even a lot of the diagnosis just generally. But um, in terms of, like, antisocialness, the way I see how people do things in society and just uh, generally is that, so I think that a lot of these behaviors are very reciprocal at the core where if you have um like say being pro-social this is like the good thing right that I help other people or altruism and empathy um a lot of that is really under the condition of being reciprocal but And then there's actually research on this kind of idea and like, there's all these evolutionary theories and all this kind of focus on what it means to be altruistic or pro-social. Um, what I don't see as much though is the talk of anti-sociality, which I think is actually operating on almost the same kind of principles where, um, it's not that you help me I help you though instead it's you hurt me I hurt you and I think it gets really complex though where um, and I think there's a lot of nuance there where like some people might be there might be something that drives someone to be completely just off the rails like evil or something too you know but but I think in a lot of cases it's something a little bit different than that where um, like if you consider what do we do with people that we are told are antisocial what we do that would be essentially be a criminal right we we decide okay we should torture this person and we decide that we should act very antisocial to them but i think that most people kind of don't really think about it that way like like if someone is like say someone murders someone or someone robs or does whatever um, if someone murders someone, we think they should be murdered. And we suddenly think that that's okay under that context. So it's reciprocal antisociality. And of course, there's a lot of variation. Like what I'm even talking about here, I'm basically kind of going to get at is that we should break those chains. So it's like, it's not like everybody just completely succumbs to reciprocal behavior. Like it's totally something we can decide on. But I think our first kind of jump instinct of behavior on a daily even like just every little micro interaction. I think that we're kind of keeping checks and balances of other people and acting antisocial and pro social based on uh, those things for for the average person. But then there might be extremes of course where people start to get Uh, extremely antisocial or extremely pro-social but I think that what we should actually consider in a lot of the fringe cases is that someone might have gotten there because of these dynamics just simply playing out and that like in this perspective it would be less in a way less of thinking of how to hold people accountable because holding them accountable is reciprocal antisocial behavior in a sense, but instead we think of how could we make that person start acting pro social. And uh, so like, like I'll give some more grounded examples real quick and then I'll ask you what you think. But first I'm going to give some examples. So, so first I'll give the example of something that's relatable and then I'll give the example of like a CEO. Cause that's like the extreme opposite where I think a lot of people will see it as very bad Um, less relatable and so in the case of let's say like a kid a kid has let's say they have antisocial parents this kid has less exposure of what it even means to be pro-social if the kid is neglected or harmed by the parents uh, the first experiences of what it even means to interact with other people in their life is that you should be careful because that person is dangerous and that Uh, if you go to like a stranger there's no reason that you should think oh well this is a stranger they're probably gonna be really nice even though my parents are horrible like that wouldn't happen right so a kid who has some kind of problematic situation with their parents might go off to like elementary school then they are defensive and paranoid with their peers because that's just what they think people are like, and then because they act that way, they will actually be a magnet for people who are who will exploit that. They they will be defensive, and therefore they'll be alone and kind of outcasted, and they won't know the social rules because they're not in a pure group. So they'll start breaking the rules. They'll start attracting people who want to reject them. They'll also be prone to being bullied by people who find that, well, no one is there to defend that person. And so this person, what are they learning? This rejected person is learning people are evil, people are bad, and that I shouldn't trust them. It puts in a kind of Machiavellian perspective. And the person will have very low skills on how to make people uh, be pro-social. And even if they do learn about how to be pro-social later, they're going to have this side of them that knows, well, look at I know that people are deep down evil and disgusting and uh, they would hurt me if I don't uh, manipulate them into being nice to me. And I think that that is where the basis of someone like a psychopath kind of emerges from. And they might reach a point where they want to like shoot up everyone because they're so disgusted with reality and everything that's happening. Like, I, I honestly feel that your, even your frustration with society and the way that it's happening right now, the way, I, and I share this, I am kind of. Even would say I'm tormented on a daily basis thinking about this stuff even if I don't express it in the same ways but um, but this kind of disdain for the way that this kind of machine of society is going I think that the psychopaths might kind of take the bad path where they've decided that um, that they may as well just Exploit everything and take advantage and just make themselves hedonistically happy and learn how to basically farm pro social behavior out of other people. And in the case of like a CEO, the thing, or even just rich people in general, and this is something that I've only like recently thought about, uh, but like there is kind of a prejudice against. Uh, rich people as well. And the thing that's weird about this is, I think that the people who are rich might actually gain some level of like internal justification when they notice that that's what's going on. The more that they feel kind of outed from, like, the more that they feel they're not a part of the group of the poor people, uh, the more that they are the enemy of those people and villainized. I think that they actually might start to justify their own villainous behavior by kind of thinking of like, like they might be a school shooter on some level in a weird way, except instead of shooting people, they're just like literally like farming the crap out of all the poor people and just like endlessly exploiting them and just living their hedonistic life protected in their like castles or something like that. Um, and I feel that there could, like, I feel that a way out of a lot of these weird dynamics in society, like, like, cause I feel like this problem, this problem isn't just about like addiction or capitalism even. It's like, it's like expanding to where like everybody is slowly, well, it, it might have capitalism at its core even, but, but, but basically I noticed that there's this tendency where everyone is kind of like I feel like everyone is atomizing and kind of kind of turning in like, like this whole like political divide and um, like uh, like every aspect of what's going wrong in society is that I feel everyone is seeing each other as enemies on all kinds of layers like in a justifying horrific things and it's like it's like a, in a sense what politics is doing to humanity in some ways kind of normalizing psychopathy like if we were to have a civil war that is like the normalization of school shooting everybody else right (laughs) like it's like or even like the movie joker uh, well that's like a whole different thing that's like that's like a one person against humanity in a way but um but i feel that there is this dynamic happening where like like once we become threatened we turn off our empathy for other people and once that happens like all the ways that we rationalize what's happening to that other person is kind of through this lens that is um kind of without their subjective uh narrative is kind of like muted out of the experience i guess and um And I think that that problem will get worse the more that people start... The more that people are hurting each other back and forth. Like, every time someone gets hurt, it's like their threat response activates, and now they're triggered into this state where the other person is the enemy, right? And then they might even become the enemy of the next person or whatever else. And, uh... But... Well, I think that's, the, that's kind of the end of what I have for that. <laughs> that was kind of intense, probably. No, I
1: know, and I think you made a lot of valid points. Um, and I heard you mention uh, Machiavellian thinking, and I heard you mention psychopathic. I didn't hear you mention uh, narcissism, but I'm sure you're familiar that, with that. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's literally oh, yeah. where it all began for me. Like, I, I was looking at narcissism, and like some of the things I was noticing... It was like i noticed that people on any side of like conflict just that is what triggers narcissism in some way like if someone were to like so both political sides will kind of be assuming the other side is inferior or subhuman in a lot of cases or uh both sides of various just conflicts generally and i think that like if someone were to tell me that i was wrong i might think well, no, actually, you're stupid and inferior. And uh, like that's kind of threat response thing is at the core of that, too. And I think that once someone, like in the case of psychopathy and narcissism on an individual level, I think once someone is to, uh, like, say one person has a conflict with you, then that person realizes you are narcissistic, gossips with other people, those other people see you as the narcissist, I think that... Um, Like, so, like, people will talk about how the narcissist is, like, really charming and nice to certain people, and they're like, don't be tricked by it. They're secretly really bad. And I feel like what's really happening is that it's relative, that they have conflict with some amount of people, and then they're still acting nice to some other amount of people. And then uh, this conflict might be something that originated because of their own issue of, like, not learning how to deal with conflicts or something but then it spreads
1: I, I experienced that experience that on my, you know, almost in my day to day life. I mean, when i like called
0: to, narcissist or
1: uh, more so, you know, going back to 2016, um, you know, having done a considerable amount of research, which I always do before I do a film, um, you know, spending thousands of hours reading, not just left or right. I'm not talking about reading political articles, I'm talking about reading public documents, emails, WikiLeaks, um, war cables, you know, these are things that are undisputed and even reported by the people who perpetuated them, right? So it's not like it's a fringe thing. You're talking about the government reporting their own drone strikes and not expecting anyone's ever going to read about them. But I would do an insane amount of research about the un- undisputed war in, in Yemen and-, and other things, uh, Syria, Libya, uh, the penal colonies in the United States. I mean, all, these, all these things are not debatable. They are real horrors, right? There's no their perception. I mean, you may disagree with how you feel about penile colonies, but you can't just argue how many people are inside of them, correct? Like you could say, well, you know, maybe they they belong there. That's that's fine if that's your belief, but I'm talking about indisputable things. And what I noticed was, um, you know, I would be very passionate in arguing, not necessarily telling somebody you're an idiot or that you're a bad person, but saying, you know, you are wrong about this and you need, you know, you should you should do some research on what you're talking about because you're making very light of something like mass incarceration. You're making very light of, you're saying things like, oh, well that was in the past and it's been many years and it's like, no, these systemic laws and this war on drugs and this uh, these problem we have where we have a prison pipeline where we make money off incarcerating people who are the most vulnerable in society. These are not debatable things. You may, you may, know, We may always believe there's two sides to everything and again, it comes down to if you think that that type of incarceration state is necessary to keep society safe it's a whole nother argument but I would find myself doing battle with you know I remember one time you know it was uh, it was on some some one of my friends from school uh, I believe that her father was making rather light of the incoming president uh, what would have been the incoming president Hillary Clinton and what I was saying to him was not that I support Donald Trump because I don't he's about as far as he could get away from my belief system um, being much more you know I hate the spectrum but if you wanted to put me on a spectrum I would say I'm very far left uh, not not Bernie Sanders far left I'm talking about a far left but regardless of that it is indisputable you would agree that you know maybe you don't agree but whether it is left right middle center whoever committing atrocities to vulnerable communities in the Middle East bombing people who are innocent having them starve to death and be food uh, deprived and these are the many of these are innocent people the amount of extreme you know, we know for a fact, based on our own government's cable logs, that nine out of ten people that are blown up in the Middle East are not criminals. They're women, children, and men that have done nothing wrong except be born in a different place than us, um, much like a football fan, right? She's just yeah. on the other team, done nothing wrong. I've got, you know, I remember a friend of mine uh, who I never really talked about politics with, but I saw her saying, you know, she was praising the potential incoming of Hillary Clinton, and all I did was remind her that. You may think this is better than Donald Trump, and you may be right, but it is offensive to some people to be cheering on somebody who has perpetuated so much horror to so many people, even if it is under the the, the, the guise of a neoliberal bipartisan war consensus. Uh, You're you're erasing a lot of the pain and anguish in this sort of celebratory anti-Trump thing, and you're failing to grapple with the fact that life will get a lot worse for others, and that this is kind of a lose-lose situation. And I think that I would often do get into arguments with people who would kind of be celebrating uh, what I see as imperialism and crony capitalism and failed neoliberalism and a depressed economic state of wealth misappropriation and celebrating that on a very, like, identity-smashing-the-glass-ceiling thing could be considered offensive to people who are either incarcerated, living in cages, or have been blown up. For no reason other than existing, and I remember trying to explain this to this guy, and he was not used to conflict. He was this, so this was a girl from my school, and she was celebrating Hillary Clinton, and I was making some points about you know this isn't much better, and we should be calling out all forms and rejecting all forms of genocide and, and crony capitalism and uh, racism and all these other things. And her and her, some guy started to yell at me. and We got into a bit of an argument, and he was telling me that I had no idea what I was talking about, and. He was, in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, he was very misinformed. And many of the boomer community is misinformed. And I actually blame a lot of them for the world that we live in now. And their life was a lot better than ours is now. That can go back to wealth. It can go back to education. That can go back to any, many of things. It is much worse now than it was when they grew up. But they have so much to say all the time about their great wisdom they like to embark on us for a society which they've had a hand in destroying. But I will say this guy was yelling at me and I was simply sticking to the issues. I wasn't talking about him. I was telling him, you know, you, you're, you're incorrect to be celebrating this. And uh, again, these are people who are not used to conflict. So he immediately assumed I was some kind of a psycho and was, you know, saying very rude things to me. And I reacted and later the story came out that I was yelling at this girl's father when in reality all I was doing was offering a different narrative. And that's that defensiveness of people who have never been called out. Yeah. Never been. They're so in an echo chamber of everyone's like clapping along and saying yes we're going to smash the glass ceiling that he had never I guess met somebody with the gall to tell him that glass ceiling will be smashed if Hillary Clinton's president but it won't be because she's a woman it'll be smashed by a drone strike or a missile in another country it'll be the cathedral ceiling being smashed by a poor family in Syria being blown up but he wasn't ready to hear that so i was immediately ostracized and the word went around school rather quickly that i'm going around yelling at people's parents when all i really did was provide a different alternate narrative to the mainstream this goes back to where our conversation started really and goes full circle which is this idea of uh, social norms and how quickly we ostracize or alienate people who disagree with whatever that agreeable so like you know we all live in a in a reality that we see through different perspectives and then we have sort of these terms where we say we all experience different perspectives but we agree that this is the norm, that this is reality because you see it, I see it and whoever else sees it and people forget that this is much more nuanced than they believe because um, their own limitations of what they perceive is, is limited by how much they know about the world around them Right. so you could know nothing about the horrors of the Middle East and therefore your uh, accepted reality with somebody else is very different than somebody like maybe me who has done reading about those specific things and you know, that's where I think things get a little messy is um, maybe I shouldn't have approached him in, in, you know, in the way in which I did, but um, I felt that, that his reaction goes in line with what you're saying of this sort of defensiveness and there was a little bit of narcissism there, but, but I think it was a reaction to conflict which he wasn't ready to deal with. And many people at my art school, which was a uh, you know, $20,000 semester art school, seemed like they had never been adapted to dealing with conflict or different opinions. Which is why I think I had so much trouble there. Where I was growing up in on the East Coast in Philadelphia and pockets of Pennsylvania, where conflict is everyday life. New York City, conflict is everyday life. It's a way of life. Um, you don't tell somebody behind their back you don't like them in Philadelphia. You tell them you don't like them to their face, and that's actually applauded. Day to day conflict. I'm not saying that it's like excitable that people are excited to get into conflict, but the East Coast traditionally is known in social norms to be it's much more upfront with how you feel. You wear your heart on your sleeve, you know, you're much more quicker probably to punch somebody in the nose. It's just in when I came to the West, and I'm not generalizing all people, I'm saying the circles I was in in the West, it seemed even more homogenized and even more difficult to speak your truth. And because of the hierarchy of Hollywood and things like that, which are wrapped up in the social order and the narratives. Uh, Anybody who has a disagreement is going to, you know, with the social norms and with the social status or with the social narratives is going to have a very hard time succeeding or getting work or even not being alienated, like you said. And I did use drugs when I was in college, and uh, some of that was spurned after 2016. I relapsed into using cocaine for a period. was born out of the alienation I felt. My peers for making the documentary The Revolution televised, which simply didn't say, who they cared won the election, but disputed the notion that everybody was happy about Hillary Clinton being president or Donald Trump being president. There was a huge movement of working class, multiracial people that felt invisible and were out there rioting during the Democratic convention. But if you watched the television, you would believe it was a celebratory uh, party with boys to men performing and all these things because the media would not show that outside it was probably before the George Floyd protests. The largest uh, movement of people, working class people, you had seen in a very long time rejecting racism and capitalism and incarceration and and immigration and 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 these horrible draconian uh, rules that we were living under, that they knew that no matter who was president in that selection would continue. That was a 20,000-person movement happening in the streets that was not shown on television. And me simply documenting that uh, after the election, it it was impossible to get a job. it, It was impossible to many people that were friends, even people that worked on the project stepped away. And, uh, yeah, it was very easy to fall into using drugs to cope with that. And even getting very depressed feelings of potential suicidal feelings, uh, for a small period, because when people really push you out in that way, um, which a lot of it was societal pressure, people around them, like, Oh, you can't talk to Kevin. He's, he's basically blacklisted. Uh, you know, you deal with him, you're not, you know, you might lose your job. You might not be able to get people to get, you want you to help them on their project. Um, So I experienced that very much firsthand, these things that you're talking about.
0: That thing you just mentioned about, um, well, there's a couple things. I think you'll be um, curious to, or what is a better word, I guess? Uh, It's hilarious that one of the strongest correlates of personality related to uh supposed narcissism is uh low agreeableness in essence disagreeing with people and it's like that's one of the things that just like kind of like ticked in my brain but it wasn't just that it was because like so how i i think you know uh but if you don't i am like i basically am like vegan or whatever and so, like, with that, I have faced, like, a bunch of social conflicts and people get, like, really mad. And it uh, obviously it used to make me really mad. Um, but, like, I don't feel that way as much anymore be, but because it's kind of, like, I've kind of, like, adapted in a different way to not uh, react that same way. But basically, like, what I ended up learning is, like, It's like, like so. Some of the memes of the that get attached to vegans, for example, is like uh, kind of like being elitist, right? And it's like that's not super far off from being narcissistic. But what wasn't particularly interesting is I found this one comment uh, on social media once that it it was just like so over the top, strange. Like I was talking to this person and. I literally wasn't saying anything, like, too conflict-oriented. But uh, this person was kind of already in the heat of a conflict, though. So, like, I just stepped in and tried to calmly talk. And this person's like, like this is, this is what happens with vegans. They're all so mentally deficient because uh, they're not getting nutrients. And, wow, 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 my feelings. And, like, they were, like, saying all this crazy stuff. And then they, at the end of the comment, though, they said that the vegans are narcissistic, and it was just like, it was just like, whoa, like, you literally just described me as being subhuman, and then you said I'm being narcissistic, and I didn't do anything, (laughs) and, like, so kind of, like, I'm kind of, like, glad, though, that I've had this weird, like, uh, like, I think what happens is that Like, so vegans are kind of stigmatized, but it's in such a way that I think people mostly don't care. Like, that's obviously not the most pressing, uh, social issue, right? So, so what ends up happening is like so much of it, I think just is permitted basically. Like there's so like in my class when they talk about that, I took a class on like prejudice and they talk about this different, there's like different kinds of ways that prejudice, Manifests in various social um, contexts where, like, some of them are like permittable, some of them are not permittable, but there's like all different kinds of nuance when it comes to that. But I won't go like too much into it. But, but so, like, okay, so the other topic though, that, so, so, like, the whole point there, without tangenting too hard, is that uh, I basically think that narcissism and disagreeing with people aren't really that different like if i disagree with someone i think that depending on how that goes down the other person will become narcissistic and i will become narcissistic unless we both control ourselves and that kind of ties into what is the other correlate of narcissism that is popularly talked about is low impulse control and it's like like, it starts to all make sense when you start to think of it that way, because if I am pissed off that someone disagrees with me and I don't have control over reacting to it, then voila, I become labeled the narcissist, right? <laughs> but um, So the other thing you talked about, though, that really touches into one of my favorite uh, uh, kind of things that I am concerned about the most is social defeat which is kind of like how you talked about uh when you get labeled by other people like blacklisted and i think that that is kind of one of the huge things that is going on behind a lot of different mental health issues like i don't like i feel like right now the problem of psychology is that we're having all these complexities and we're talking about all these complex different disorders and uh, like there's probably the, well, okay, I, I don't want to oversimplify things so I'm not going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up from that a second but but I think at the core of a lot of different things is this idea of social defeat which is basically what you described like when you start to in some sense get blacklisted by other people like if you are uh, the person who is scapegoated by your family or that you become you basically have cooties or something like that or you become the the lowest link in your social circle or your job or uh whatever kind of hierarchical system uh that you are part of and uh so like In terms of something like schizophrenia, I think schizophrenia is when they label you as being crazy. Like, are you blacklisted because your ideas are uh, something that I disagree with and I think that you're just insane? Well, I guess you have schizophrenia now. Are you blacklisted and I disagree with your ideas and mostly you are just... The asshole. Well, then you might be narcissistic. Or do I disagree with you because of etc. etc. Like I feel like there's all these ways that like you can be, and like the the difference of someone like schizophrenic versus like psychopathic. I feel like is that um, like they seem on the surface they seem like totally different, right? Like it seems like the schizophrenic is like losing touch. And then the psychopath is like this kind of normalish person that's just evil. But I think more what's going on is both of them have been kicked out of society, and one of them is the victim. The schizophrenic is the victim who sees people as attacking them, and then now they have this thing called paranoia, which is basically this sense that people are attacking you, that you're persecuted. And often, uh, I think that that. I think the more that one feels like persecuted i think that the end result is far more severe that this will produce the hallucinations and all this other kind of problems like you will uh have cognitive symptoms and all this stuff but i think at the core uh it is often a often arising because the person was kicked out of society like if if they develop, like, flat-earth beliefs, let's say, they might get labeled, like, conspiracy theorist or something like that. And um, I think that the stress of living on the fringes and being chronically insulted and rejected uh, leads to the development of, like, slowly worsening cognitive function and kind of like a pseudo-dementia state and then eventually like hallucinations and just being too stupid to function and stuff like that. I think there's other ways that you can reach those problems. Like if you were being tortured, you might not have this kind of scenario of social rejection. Someone could just like torture you and like lock you in a box with no lights for three days with no food and you might get a temporary schizophrenia or your life may just happen to play out in such a way that you are living a life of solitary confinement in the confines of society and capitalism. And then the psychopath, though, is kind of like, instead of being the victim, it's like, well, no, fuck you, I'm going to fight you. It's like, if you think of fight or flight, it's not like the victim stance. Instead, it becomes now all of you are my enemies, society is my enemy, and I'll act like cruel if I feel like it because you all deserve it or something like that. And then they learn to play the games. And like, I think that these people will tend to seem much more conformist in ways because they basically win by doing that. They have so much to win by tricking everyone to believing that they share the same, uh, like whatever, share the same beliefs so, but, but yeah, uh, that rant is done.
1: <laughs> I, think, I think you made a lot of great points and I think it, it circles back to where we started, which was the uh, rejection of, and I believe that uh, you and I have spoken before about um, the solitary confinement element of alienation in just society. You don't necessarily be in a cell, have those kind of reactions and that things like alienation you're saying and rejection uh, can lead to worsening uh, mental states. I think that um, I think that is true. The only thing I would be hard pressed to sort of uh, differ from, I guess, is well, I guess it depends on the terms in which we define rejection, because uh, the rejection has often led to groups of people coming together and uh, and furthering. The, you know, we'd like the Enlightenment period, the salons that used to exist in the seventeenth uh, or the eighteenth century and places like that. Where these were the people that were on the fringe society coming together and had some of the most enlightening moments uh, and discussions and philosophical breakthroughs that we've ever that we've ever seen. Um, even someone like Karl Marx or uh, you know a lot of these other people were definitely on the outside looking in and, and they were definitely, they were da- they're actually tapping into and communicating a feeling of angst and, and really putting a, a words to the feelings a lot of people were having about being rejected from society. And I think that that's important. If There's a way to communicate these things in a, a proactive way uh, and these philosophical ideas that are not only being treated as fringe but challenging uh, the, the, the social status and the social order. Um, So I guess to to back up and say, so you have people on the fringe, and perhaps what they are are on the fringe about is is actually very much a mirror of what's really happening, and that might be the very reason they're being pushed on the outside, but if they're able to meet small sex and groups, and rather than uh, just, you know, as we've talked about, fall into something like addiction or maybe cognitive decline, perhaps be around other people who share these uh, beliefs that are outside of the social norm and able to explore them with people, even if it is a band of outsiders, and very much foster that, those ideas and they're able to really share and, and disagree in a safe space, I think that's where some of the greatest philosophical works in history have been born out of. So I think that there is a positive outcome that, that can exist. But, um, you know, again, I think that, you know, like you're, like you're saying, there's a lot of negative outcomes, too. I think it really just all depends, but I don't want to uh, diminish the fact that some of the greatest works ever written, I think, were very much uh, written in those kind of circumstances
0: yeah even uh Socrates, uh he there, there's um well, he used to have something that appeared to be like hearing voices, and it actually is how he made the decision not to like he had, I guess the opportunity to escape the city before he was going to be uh killed, and uh, his internal voice thing told him not to do it. And
1: so he stayed
0: and died. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's interesting.
1: No, it's very interesting. Um, I've actually never heard that, but, uh, but I believe it. Um, I think that the way that we used to kill a lot of the philosophical minds of the, of the older generations, I think now what we do is we kill them in a different way, which is we, we separate them or put them in time out from the rest of the world. Or we make them impossible for them to get work, or we, you know, ban them on the internet or censor them, whatever, you know, kill their online identity. Um, I don't think it's death anymore, as much as something more less literal, which is being turned invisible. It's just as scary, being disappeared or vanished or evaporated from society. The um, so UK, you, you know, it's like they say, it's it's, you know, it's to say like the you know if the tree you know falls over and nobody hears it. Um, that's obviously not true because, you know, if you, like I, I use this dark analogy a lot of times, if you drone somebody overseas and nobody hears it, which we won't, those people still die. But I think in a more less literal sense, um, if nobody can hear you speak and you can't get your voice out there in the world we live in, which is a massive sea of information, you do cease to exist in many people's eyes. And I think that that's how we kill people now is we take away any platform they have to speak out. So, um... Not sure exactly how I'm not sure exactly how the ties into what you're saying but I think that that is
0: uh, oh it totally does
1: I, I think that that is that is the fear now is not that you know government agency is going to show up at your door and put a bullet in your head but they will make you vanish from, uh, from being able to speak out they'll make you vanish from being able to share your feelings and they'll do what you're saying which is alienate you and isolate you and if you don't have those uh, building blocks or a, a group around you of support who are willing to let you explore these kind of thoughts you, know, you could very quickly have a lot of decline, not mentally, physically, and health wise. Um, you
0: know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's like I agree so much. Yep. It's kind of crazy. It's like yeah.
1: I want to. I want to thank you for letting me come on your platform and speak. Uh, uh, the last six months during COVID, I've been on the other end of it, where I've been doing smoke break which is my upcoming podcast and letting people do a lot of the speaking and i do a lot more of the just kind of listening because that's what i usually do when i'm smoking i'm usually smoking i'm usually like somebody else I, I love to hear stories and find common ground and listen to people talk but this is the first time in about you know since i got back from china during the covid outbreak where a lot of people wanted to have me on their podcast sort of the quick you know, newsworthy kind of podcast like oh you were in china for covid let's hear what you think about that it's the first time in a while anyone's had me come on their show and allowed me to just speak freely about anything in which I want to speak about. So I want to thank you for letting me do that.
0: Yeah, this has been really interesting. Like, uh, it's like this weird intersection where we've—I feel like we've pretty smoothly connected some of our uh, key thoughts about, like, I guess, like, society, and um, or. I think it's been- yeah, and I hope people make it this far. I hope it's probably like, what, two or three hours almost. But uh, yeah, I'm going to upload this in full if as long as you're cool with that.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you. Um, originally, we weren't going to really give Smoke Break episodes to others to share them. But in this case, I would be willing to give you the unfiltered episode for your podcast Return for you allowing me to put this on our website when it launches. This turned out to be a much better discussion than I. Had. I was afraid that uh, you're you're very uh, in depth in what you study, and I am. Um, you know, I think that's actually why it turned out working out so well. But I was afraid that I would be very out of my element in being able to respond to a lot of what you say because you are very advanced in um in what you study in the mind and the, the science behind it. And I'm much more the of you know, social, economical, and, and I'm more. We have we have very different things that we've looked into and and channeled ourselves into but i think crossed over in a way that was unexpected and and really powerful and i would love to be able to share this on my page and reroute them back to your page yeah honored Uh, this is a great discussion we had
0: yeah i was i was nervous going into this too because i was thinking like well basically my fear is that i will Go into a conversation and just be almost empty-headed or something. But then a lot of the stuff you're saying actually was uh, getting me to think, and yeah, it's it's been good. Um, but yeah, I would definitely be like super happy to do that, and I'll upload uh, the one that you send of the smoke rake, and uh, let you. I'll send you this, and uh, I'll edit it first so that it's. Well, you can edit it too if you're. I don't know how good at editing you are um, if you don't like my editing I can send like you know but we'll we'll figure that out later but um, yeah this has been like really interesting I kind of hope people like watch this whole thing because it's like it's been really interesting like just the overarching uh, description of society or something
1: how many people are watching now I don't even know how to see that Uh, there
0: was some at the beginning they left though uh, there was like two people, but um
1: get okay. more viewers when you post the cut down version and then they can listen to it whenever they want, right? I assume.
0: Yeah, like they uh, there's like I've had a thousand views on older podcasts and then I kinda took a break and lost the perhaps traction or something. But right now there's like fifty per episode, but um so good but I think depending on like where I post it, like if I can post this to Reddit somewhere, I just have to think of like how to fit it into the different cultures. Basically. Um, and we've
1: always done very really good on Reddit. It's like, we don't do that well on Instagram. We don't do that well on Twitter, but like Reddit, you've always done really well it's weird like you know we've been on the front page before the whole website's
0: kind of crazy amazing we, yeah i love reddit we go That's...
1: On, we'll go on like instagram and we just the swipe culture just doesn't really click with our work as well i know so,
0: yeah. <laughs> do you when you say we are you saying me and you or are you saying like you're saying
1: but but I, I could see you having a similar issue it is the
0: same yes
1: <laughs> it's not built for the dense it's not built for dense conversation it's not built for. Uh, it's really things you can absorb in about 3 seconds that's just not the kind of work i make i, mean, I don't even
0: think there's a way to get access to new people as much on there like i have a feeling that the algorithm has been ruined <laughs> cuz i don't I get followers with, now
1: I agree with this it used to be like uh, you know it used to be much different It used to be. i remember even when we first started the right brain page which was really just one year ago we finally you know we've been we've be, been a group for 5 years you now we've done some projects went to some festivals we didn't make a right brain account until last year and I remember um early on you would post something and you get like 80 likes and then they it's like six months ago they switched the algorithm and we were getting like 10 15 Dude, same 20,
0: I, I was but, peaking but, at like 140 likes and then now it's like I get like 15 and it's it's, yeah, it's so weird, weird.
1: I think that it has to do with corporations. Like everything else, are now running it. And if you notice, I'm always seeing the same like reels and clip shows. And it's like everything. It's it just seems like somebody's gamed the system, much like Wall Street. (laughs) Like it's really frustrating. Unfortunately, I have to jump off. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to bounce this out and then I'm going to email it to you.
0: Yeah, sounds good. I will. uh, Thank you so much for coming. It was uh, very good.
1: Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
0: Uh, You too. Goodbye.